Welcome to PA Centered, a podcast designed to help listeners be a part of the solution to end sexual harassment, abuse, and assault. Each episode, we will take on a topic or current event to help spark conversation and break down barriers to building communities free from sexual violence. Hi, I'm Jackie Strom, the Prevention and Resource Coordinator at the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Rape. I'll be your host today as we're joined by Conrad Jarzina and Lisa Matakaitis from PCAR's Sexual Violence Legal Assistance Program, or SVLAP, to learn about your rights if you experience sexual harassment in the workplace. Welcome, Conrad and Lisa. Uh, good morning, Jackie. Good morning, Lisa. Good morning, Jackie and Conrad. So just so everyone knows, PCAR's Sexual Violence Legal Assistance Project provides free legal representation to the survivors of sexual assault throughout Pennsylvania with regard to a variety of legal issues. One of those areas is employment discrimination, which often intersects with other matters such as protection orders, housing, or criminal advocacy, just to name a few. During today's episode, we will be sharing some stories that include descriptions of sexual violence. Please take care of yourself while listening. So to get us started, I thought you all could share with us the definition of sexual harassment and maybe give us some examples. Sure. So, uh, excuse me, according to the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, uh, known as EEOC, Sexual harassment is defined as unwelcome sexual advances, requests for sexual favors, unwelcome touching, sexist or sexual remarks or jokes, and or other verbal or physical conduct of sexual nature that directly or indirectly affects the victims uh, negatively at work. Uh, So besides this formal definition, uh, Lisa, do you have any more specific examples that you can give us to illustrate this? Sure. Some uh, examples of uh, sexual harassment in the workplace might include sending uh, sexually suggestive emails, memes, text messages, notes, uh, things like that. It might be uh, voicemail messages. Uh, It might be sharing inappropriate uh, pictures or videos, posting pictures of you know, naked women in the workplace, although that doesn't happen that much anymore. Um, It still does happen. Uh, Asking questions about somebody's sexual history or their sexual orientation could be considered discrimination based on sex or sexual harassment. Uh, Making offensive comments about somebody's sexual orientation or gender identity and making sexual comments about the way somebody looks, how they're dressed, their clothing, their breast size, their body parts. All those things are inappropriate in the workplace and uh, may constitute sexual harassment. Although the the actions don't have to be sexual in nature, it uh, it also can include promises uh, like a raise or a promotion in exchange for sexual favors. I've had cases in the past where um, a female employee was forced to submit to oral sex in order to keep her job. um, And not just oral sex in other cases, um, but basically having to submit to an employer's or supervisor's sexual sexual advances in order to get a raise or a promotion or to keep their job. Um, We call this kind of sexual harassment quid pro quo sexual harassment. 
And I guess I've heard in the past um, that the sexual harassment has to be severe and pervasive. So could you talk a little bit more about what those words mean? The harassment has to be severe or pervasive. It doesn't have to be severe and pervasive. Um, Courts generally have said that like simple teasing in the workplace, offhanded comments, isolated incidents that aren't really serious don't constitute, you know, workplace harassment or a hostile work environment. That the comments or the actions, the conduct has to be frequent. Um, And frequent means, you know, pretty much anytime you come into work, you're subject to these comments or, you know, these remarks, um, and it happens on a regular basis. Severe means that there has been an inappropriate touching of somebody's um, breasts, buttocks, back, shoulders, um, somebody who has been sexually assaulted at work. Um, That would be a severe form of sexual harassment. So courts have said that Title VII isn't a general civility code for the workplace. The sexual harassment, in order for it to be actionable, has to be severe or pervasive. And it can come from a non-employee, it can come from a coworker, and it can come from a supervisor. In one case, a cocktail waitress working in casino alleged that she was sexually assaulted at work by a casino patron. She said that the customer put a casino chip in her bra and touched her breast. The employer um, got her complaint and uh, took their action by banning the harasser from the casino for 40 days. Uh, the employer brought the employee brought suit saying that she was sexually harassed at work and, and it went to a jury trial. Not very many cases go to a jury trial, but this one did. The jury found that the employer's response by uh, banning this harasser from the casino for only 40 days was insufficient and awarded her over $1 million. So uh, it, it does seem that, that courts and juries around the country are starting to recognize sexual harassment as really a, a major concern in our society and that it needs to be changed. And jury verdicts like this really are showing um, the way that society is taking sexual harassment more seriously than it had in the past. And so in, in these cases, I'm sure before, um, it, it, it took a long time for this case to go to a jury trial. Um, and I would imagine that uh, this particular waitress uh, did a great job documenting what happened to her. And it cannot be emphasized enough um, how important it is to document the case. Um, so if, if someone is uh, feels that they're being uh, sexually harassed or discriminated in the workplace, uh, this is so important to keep everything, every piece of communication, every email, text message, screenshots. Um, if the communication is nonverbal to, to maybe even just like keep a journal uh, with dates, names, uh, short summaries of, of, of the conversation, um, if you notice someone uh, observed what happened to you, uh, again, write down their name, uh, contact information. If there are any subsequent uh, communication with that person, also keep that. Uh, probably, uh, usually in our profession, we, we say uh, less is more, but when it comes to documentation, uh, it's never enough. Uh, let your attorney or 
uh, whoever, you know, even if you represent yourself and you're before the administrative agency or a judge, let them determine what is relevant, what is not relevant, because maybe surprised uh, that some piece of evidence that, that doesn't seem significant is, is the key piece of uh, evidence that just basically links everything together in your case. Uh, so again, just paper trail, paper, paper trail, um, make sure it's somewhere safe where no one has access to it, uh, wouldn't share it with anyone. Uh, and even if you do submit uh, a complaint or a grievance within uh, your company, uh, do not submit all the originals. Make sure you just provide copies and all the originals stay, stay with you. Conrad, I've had situations where in, in employees who are experiencing sexual harassment, uh, you know, think, I, I don't have any evidence of this. Nobody's going to believe me. This is a he said, she said, um, and they take out their iPhone and they say, the next time he does this to me, I'm going to record it. Um, what do you think about that in the workplace? Uh, is it okay to record somebody uh, in the workplace, even if it's for the purpose of documenting sexual harassment? Uh, that's, that's a tough one. I mean, in Pennsylvania in general, uh, you need consent. Uh, of both parties uh, in order to, to be able to record the communication. But if you, if you, I would say, if you say, you know, I'm going to record it and the person uh, that is being recorded is the one you said it to or, or gave them heads up or, or you, you, you said that I'm turning it on and, and uh, uh, they continue, uh, you have a good argument that the, that the person consented to, to the conversation being recorded. So, uh, you know, wish there would be a, a black and white answer to it. It's a little grayish, depending on their, we always say it depends, it depends, but it, it really does. So I'd be careful with that. Uh, if, if you do record someone, uh, don't share that recording with anyone. It's recommended that you, you speak to an attorney um, and, and uh, let her or him, you know, determine uh, if this would be a good piece of evidence or it's something you should immediately uh, erase. Uh, and it, it's also important to remember that if somebody is experiencing sexual harassment at work, they have to check their employee handbook and their workplace policies or their collective bargaining agreement if they're a unionized employee. Uh, most employers not all, but most employers have some kind of anti-sexual harassment, anti-discrimination, anti-retaliation policy in their employee handbooks. And typically those policies are going to say, um, you know, if you're experiencing sexual harassment or discrimination in the workplace, you know, you should report it to your supervisor or um, they'll usually identify somebody in human resources who you can make the report to. Uh, and then the employer, once they receive that complaint or notice of a potential or allegations of harassment or discrimination, the employer has a duty to take prompt and effective remedial action. Um, and usually that's going to entail the employer uh, doing some kind of investigation. And their investigation may be interviewing the alleged harasser, interviewing the employee who's alleging harassment, um, maybe looking at documentation, uh, but in, in a lot of situations that I've seen, um, and I've been doing employment law for over 10 years, 
um, the employer may suspend the uh, alleged harasser, usually with pay for a short amount of time while they're doing the investigation. Um, that's a, that's a best practices for the employer to do that. Um, and if they do find that there was some kind of uh, violation of their policies, their anti-discrimination, anti-retaliation policies, um, an employer typically will try to take remedial action. What does that look like? It, it could vary. Um, they may send the harasser to um, training. I've seen that in a lot of cases. They may um, shift the um, the alleged harasser to a different position so that that person's no longer supervising uh, the the victim of the sexual harassment. Um, but you know, depending on what remedial action take the employer decides to take, and they may decide that nothing happened, um, that there was no harassment, there was no discrimination, and that they don't have to do anything. But the key word is effective. And they, it, you have to take action to try to stop the, the harassment from occurring in the future. I've had situations where you have serial sexual harassers and the employer doesn't do a thing to the sexual, to the alleged harasser. They just allow this person to keep harassing employees. They may move them to another position and the person does it again and again and again. And in that situation, you really have um, an employer who's failing to take prompt and effective remedial action to protect their employees in the workplace. And you know, if, if employees uh, that are harassed by a serial harasser um, do bring action, that, that kind of situation could result in, in a punitive damage award. So what could happen if someone complains of sexual harassment at work? And, and more specifically, what if someone is scared to report the sexual harassment? I, I would say if you're experiencing sexual harassment at work, call an attorney. You know, we're here to help. Um, we're here to help victims of sexual harassment in the workplace. We can uh, help you decide when to report it. And that's your choice to report it or to not report it. We can um, help you figure out a plan on how to report it, to whom you should report it to, um, and guide you through that process. You know, it's, it's very hard coming forward with allegations of sexual harassment. People are afraid to lose their jobs. They're afraid that they're gonna get demoted. They're afraid that, that their hours are gonna be changed. They're afraid that they're gonna be considered complainer or bad employees. So it's a huge step, huge step for people to say, to bring this to light and to make the, their employer aware of it. So it, it is important to note that, uh, um, hopefully obvious for everyone, that the employer is not supposed to retaliate uh, and there are separate protections um, for employees who are subject to re retaliation. Uh, I believe that around 40% of claims processed by EOC are actually retaliation <clears throat> oriented. And, uh, and there could be severe penalties that come uh, with that if, if someone reports <laughs> sexual harassment or uh, discrimination and then they do lose their job as a result of that or their hours are cut or they're being reassigned to another position or you know different shift uh, that the employer knows is not 
good for them because of their family situation, they have kids or something. Um, and in those cases, you don't even have to prove that uh, the sexual harassment or discrimination actually took place. That's not prerequisite. Um, employer could be successful proving that there was no harassment or uh, discrimination. But if they retaliate because you did assert your rights or and, and filed a complaint, uh, put it simply, they could get in a lot of trouble. So, uh, so you do have protections and they kick in immediately regardless of the merits of your case. And it's something important uh, to be aware of. That, that, that's true. That a lot of times we see that the retaliation claims after somebody complains or gives testimony to the EEOC or something like that, if they're retaliated against, the retaliation claims are usually more successful than the underlying discrimination claim. And I think that's why um, the, the cases are so high at the EEOC, you know, of all the, like Conrad mentioned, of all the kind of discrimination or retaliation cases are the highest um, number of cases that, that are brought at the EEOC. Um, but usually when we see retaliation, we wanna look at a, at a pattern, uh, we call it causation. So employee engaged in protected activity, like going to HR and complaining about sexual harassment. And then within a short amount of time, after uh, engaging in that protected activity, some kind of material adverse action happened. Uh, and um, that, that affected the employees, uh, that affected the employee's job or would dissuade another employee for participating in the EEO process. Uh, I've had situations too that come up where uh, a coworker who has observed the sexual harassment uh, has gone to HR and complained of sexual harassment. We call it third party or bystander um, complaining, you know, participating in the EEO process. And the, the employee, the, where the employee who was maybe too afraid to complain to HR, um, they had another employee go to HR on their behalf and I've seen situations where the employee has, the employer has fired that third party employee for, you know, sticking up for the rights of a coworker. So those kind of claims can be brought as well uh, at the EEOC or the PHRC. But it is very, very important for an employee to follow their uh, employee handbook, the policies and procedures that are in place and give the employer an opportunity to respond. Um, if the employer doesn't take a, a, an effective response, you know, the employee has a couple options. They could quit their job and maybe file for unemployment compensation benefits, maybe try to negotiate some kind of separation from the employer, or maybe try to negotiate a different workplace assignment if it's, um, you know, really interfering with their ability to do their job to be in that situation. But let's assume, yeah, let's assume an employee does go to HR. Going to HR um, isn't like filing a formal complaint. Um, in order to preserve your rights to bring some kind of discrimination claim in the future, say you want to preserve your rights to file a sexual harassment claim against this employer, you have to go to a federal or state agency and actually file a formal complaint. 
Um, you have to do that within 180 days in Pennsylvania of the adverse action, which is a short amount of time. That's six months. A lot of people think, hey, I, I filed a complaint. I went to HR. I notified HR um, and I filed a complaint. HR typically isn't going to tell you that you also have to go outside the employer and file a complaint with the state or federal agency. Um, like I said, in Pennsylvania, it's 180 days to preserve your rights. Um, and um, under federal law, you have 300 days. And if you're in Pennsylvania, typically you would file a complaint with the EEOC in Philadelphia or Pittsburgh or the PHRC, uh, which is, has its main headquarters in Harrisburg. So what happens next then? Like if you do pursue filing a complaint with one of those organizations, what, what happens next? Is there a mediation process? When does it go to court? What does that look like? So once a, excuse me, once a complaint is filed, uh, let's say with EOC, uh, the agency will notify the employer and give the employer a chance to respond to the complaint. Uh, the employer and employee the complaint will be investigated, um, and um, if employer and employee agree, the case may be submitted to uh, mediation through EEOC. I mean, some EEOC could, could conclude that there are no basis for the um, complaint, and it's, it will never get to mediation, but uh, a lot of cases of mediation takes place. I think the system is set up to get these cases resolved and, and keep them uh, from federal courts. Um, so, so media, before we, before I get into EEOC mediation, just, just a note that when we talk about HR and then handling those internal complaints, I think, you know, it's important to have an attorney just because sometimes I think employer could offer mediation, um, and that could be a dangerous thing because, uh, that could seem formal and designed to help you and, uh, and, and give you a forum to address all these issues. Um, but it has nothing to do with EOC. It has nothing to do um, with, with the state agency. Uh, it could be just an uh, internal uh, way of trying to keep these uh, issues uh, basically under the rug. Uh, it leads you to the maybe potentially signing documents, waiving your rights. Uh, that would prevent you from then pursuing uh, your claim in, in, through EEOC or, or later in the court system. So, so if something like that is um, offered, I would say it's almost like your insurance company contacting you and trying to settle a claim. Uh, you know, of course, they look out for their best interest, not for your best interest. So, so, uh, so that's why it's important to have an attorney or someone that you can ask and, and you know, sometimes it could be a reasonable uh, and, and a good way to, to, to address the conflict because maybe you just don't want to go through the lengthy process and just uh, considering your approach to it and, and, and what happened, it, it may be a perfectly fine uh, resolution to the problem, but, uh, but just it's important to be careful uh, because uh, it will involve signing documents and, and you never want to sign anything without uh, consulting with an attorney first. So as far as EEOC process, um, for a case to go to mediation, both parties have to consent to it. Um, and then uh, if, 
a neutral third-party mediator uh, is selected and, and meets together with the parties, encourages them to communicate their concerns, and basically works with them to create an agreement that will end the conflict. Uh, so it's not as adversarial um, as court proceedings are. It's Again, it's mediation, so it's a lot of shadow diplomacy. The mediator talks to employee, mediator talks to employer. Um, you know, and, uh, uh, and most of the cases do end at this stage, and the, the parties then don't have to testify in court. They don't have to uh, go through cross-examination, deal with the litigation-related stress in general. Uh, it's, it's lengthy, it's not fun, um, and, and this is a good way to, uh, to just make it end. Um, and the, the process can, uh, I'm sorry, uh, and important to keep in mind that the mediation is free and most of all confidential. So, uh, so basically, uh, the, you know, the case ends, it's, it's, you don't litigate and basically it not, doesn't become, you know, case law where someone out there is reading about what happened to you. Uh, people aren't talking about it. You don't have witnesses who participated in the trial, but they will then go back to, you know, usually it's your coworkers uh, or people that are higher up that, that may be involved in litigation. So, uh, uh, so when, once you reach the agreement, uh, both parties will basically sign um, agreement that they will not uh, disclose anything that happened during the mediation, including uh, including you know the results of, of of the mediation or what what's in the agreement. And uh, and speaking of of these agreements, it's, you know people usually assume that it's just money. You know you, you agree on on set amount of money and the case settles, but uh, these agreements can involve a lot of other things. So um, other than receiving money damages, uh, you could be reinstated at work. You could get your job back if, if you lost it as a result of, of what happened to you. Um, you could be maybe reinstated to your previous position if you're demoted. Um, the employer could agree to change its uh, sexual harassment policy. So you filing is not only going to benefit you, but it'd be, you know, a lot of times will benefit other, you know, Current and future employees, uh, because uh, because you called them out, and now they have to be careful, and they change their policy, and they know they have to stick by it. Uh, and also, it could involve uh, uh, retraining or training of the staff or, or supervisors of everyone in the company, because maybe you know a lot of these employers, they're you know they do some training, the day of orientation, and then you know people are there. 10, 15 years later without any additional training, but the law changes, the, you know, a lot of things change out there and, uh, and it's important to, uh, to keep these things fresh. So, so again, those, the mediation can be very, very helpful and, and, and have impact not only on, on the person that is pursuing the claim, but um, many, many other employees uh, in the company, especially if it's a big company. It's helpful to know that it doesn't always go to court like you see in TV shows or in the movies, but that it can be settled through mediation. Yeah, very few cases. I mean, Lisa probably has more of, uh, uh, you know, she, she could provide better, <laughs> uh, give us better idea of how many cases or percentage of cases that actually end up being litigated. Uh, yeah, I think it's like less than uh, 
one percent of of uh, discrimination cases ever go to a jury trial, uh, and that's you know in the middle district in Pennsylvania, it's it's very rare that a case is going to make it all the way through the court system. Either it's going to be resolved or get dismissed along the way. Um, but I think it's really important uh, for somebody who's experiencing sexual harassment at work, especially if they're a survivor of any kind of sexual assault or trauma, um, to just try to take care of themselves. Um, because, you know, going through this experience at work um, can bring up memories of past, past events and, and trigger physical, psychological responses that, um, you know, they, they weren't just anticipating, you know, nobody asked to be sexually harassed at work. Um, so it's important to, you know, reach out to either advocates, um, you know, we're, we're trauma-informed lawyers here at, at PCAR, um, and we're here to listen and to help. Um, if you need to take time off of work, if, if you're experiencing sexual harassment, um, you know, there, there are ways to take time off of work, maybe take FMLA leave after consulting with your doctor, if that's what they think you should do. Um, but it, it's really, really important to, to reach out, to get support. There are people to help. Um, and we are here to support survivors in any way that we can. So are there things that employers and workplaces can do to prevent sexual harassment from occurring? Employers have a duty to uh, try to prevent sexual harassment from occurring in their workplace. Um, the employers uh, should have policies. They should have training for all employees. They should have training for supervisors. They should have an effective complaint procedure in place. Uh, and, you know, they should take allegations uh, seriously. And sometimes employers will engage outside investigators to do a, a kind of a neutral investigation if there is a complaint of sexual harassment or any other kind of hostile work environment harassment in the workplace. Um, but employers really should have, you know, ongoing training, policy review, um, updating their employee manuals and, and, and uh, and things like that. Jackie, do we have at PCAR a training program for employers if they need assistance? We do. It's called Respect at Work, and it's an employee training program that can help organizations prevent sexual harassment and abuse by developing work environments that are safe, healthy, and respectful. And so what's different about Respect at Work than some other sexual harassment trainings that folks may have gone through is that we really believe it needs to be more than liability-focused training on definitions and policies, but instead we want to be working towards shifting norms and changing behaviors to really create that culture of safety, equality, and respect. So we have customized trainings that, that can be designed to meet the specific needs of workplaces while protecting against behaviors that are experienced as disrespectful or harassing. And we also have a team of folks who can ensure that your company's processes and procedures are up to date by doing this hands-on review of policies and collaborating with your human resources staff. 
and we've been able to work with a wide range of business industries or nonprofit organizations, and it can be an employer of any size. And so we really encourage you to reach out to PCAR if you want to learn more about our Respect at Work training program, because we can do this both on-site or online, and we would love to customize that for your organization. So are you still able to do that training um, during COVID, Jackie? Yep, absolutely. We are able to do things all online, um, whatever kind of platform your organization is using right now. And hopefully at some point we'll be able to get back to some of that in-person stuff. But it's really great because we have a network of advocates trained all throughout the state of Pennsylvania to do this. So regardless of where you're at in the Commonwealth, we have folks who can help. Thank you. Excellent. Yeah. So my last question is really just that if someone is experiencing sexual harassment at work, how can they get in touch with the SVLAP for help? Uh, They can simply uh, call our number. We have a separate number within PCAR. It's uh, 717-901-6784. And uh, when they call this number, they will... Typically, you go through the intake process, we do the conflict check, and, uh, and then you're assigned to uh, one of the attorneys. Uh, we have five attorneys on our team, and, and uh, once you assign to, uh, to an attorney, uh, one of us typically will reach out and uh, shortly after the intake and uh, do the initial consultation uh, just to get an idea what you know, the issues are, answer any questions that you uh, have and then uh, make recommendations and but you make decisions so in each case you're the boss we're not going to tell you what to do how to do it we can give you the tools to make an educated decision that you feel is best for you and uh, and we'll follow your lead uh, what's important uh, is that uh, if this is confidential strictly strictly confidential um, there are different things that govern that. So uh, when you talk to us, we cannot talk to anyone about it, uh, disclose it, unless you would allow us to do so in writing. Uh, uh, but other than maybe talking about the case among ourselves within the team, uh, the, you know, your information, your name, number doesn't, doesn't go anywhere. Um, and so it's better ask and get an answer sooner than later because um, sometimes we can just give you some maybe tips on like I mentioned earlier about getting the documentation um, and the best way to do it, the best way to preserve it. We can review the employee manual or your handbook and then give you an idea what process you should, you know, or procedure you should follow. And of course we can assist you if you, if you would like us to do that. So uh, uh, for anyone out there, feel free to reach out, be more than happy to work with you. And it's free, right? That's absolutely free. free. Awesome. All right. Well, Conrad and Lisa, thank you so much for joining us to talk today to learn about our rights if we experience sexual harassment in the workplace. Thank Thank you you for having us. (laughs) All right. That's all the time we have today. Thank you, everyone who listened to this episode of PA Centered. You can learn more at pcar.org or contact the SVLAP at 717-901-6784.
If you or a loved one needs help, a local sexual assault center is available 24-7. Call 1-888-772-7227 for more information or find your local center online at pcar.org. Together, we can end sexual violence. Any views or opinions expressed on PA Centered by staff or their guests are solely their own and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of PCAR or PCAR's funders.